welcome to the listen and think podcast i'm your host kuvam chok so a brief overview of the podcast before we get started with the first episode the idea of this podcast is to make interesting but often complex and esoteric ideas more accessible i plan on doing this by engaging in conversations with people who study these topics extensively and hence are well equipped to explain and defend their views the goal really is to expand the conversation regarding these topics beyond the small academic circle a quick disclaimer here i'm not an expert on any of these topics i'm learning about them just as i hope you do and hence i'll be bringing on experts to keep the conversation on track however just because i'm not an expert doesn't mean i won't be asking questions or even challenging the guests on their opinions of course i want to see whether their ideas stand up to scrutiny but beyond that the key reason to ask these questions is to really learn in the form of a conversation rather than a monologue or an essay so today i'll be discussing the topic of free will philosophers and scientists have been discussing this topic for centuries now and yet the conversation seems restricted to just a handful of people if you just take a minute to think about it you'll realize how consequential this topic is from regrets about interpersonal relationships to the criminal justice system to topics like wealth inequality the notion of free will is central to how we think about these issues we all seem to have a strong sense of free will which is to say we all feel like we could have done otherwise this intuition about us having free will guides much of what we do in the world and how we think about what we do once we've done it so the obvious question to ask is is this intuition correct i asked this question today with professor christian list for those of you who aren't familiar with this topic let me just briefly describe what free will means and what the case against it is free will is the idea that we are the authors of our actions this feeling we all have that we are in control and our actions aren't merely the product of prior causes but science has really put pressure on this idea instead of going into detail of what the various scientific arguments are let me just give you a quote by the author sam harris that encapsulates the case against free will in a nutshell he asks the following question how can we be free as conscious agents if everything that we consciously intend is caused by events in our brain that we do not intend and of which we are entirely unaware this is the fundamental question that we discuss in this episode so now with all the pieces in place let's get started So I'm here with Professor Christian List. He is a professor of philosophy and political science at the London School of Economics, where I'm a student. He did his graduate studies at the University of Oxford, and before joining LSE, he held positions at Harvard, Princeton, MIT, and other universities. 
Today, we're discussing his latest book, Why Free Will is Real. In this book, he responds to the challenge made to the idea of free will by many philosophers, scientists, and public intellectuals, including Jerry Cohen, Robert Sapolsky, and Sam Harris. It's great to be talking to you, Professor List. Hi, thank you for having me on your program. It's a pleasure to inaugurate my podcast with you. So before we dive into the topic of free will, could you tell us a little bit about your journey as an intellectual? So how you got here and what have been your key interests so far? Uh, so that's a long story. So I, I better cut it short. Um, uh, originally, I studied mathematics and philosophy and uh, then I went into political science um, because I had a very strong interest in um, political philosophy. And um, while studying um, political science, I got particularly interested in social choice theory, which is the study of um, collective decision processes uh, and voting um, processes um, through mathematical methods. Um, and so I did a lot of work in the area of um, social choice theory, and that in turn then generated an interest in um, uh, problems of human decision-making, both individual and collective, more generally issues related to um, rationality, issues related to the psychology underlying uh, human decision-making. And um, then at some point, obviously, uh, that the topic of free will came up. And, and indeed, I, I think um, all people who have an interest in philosophical issues um, will come across the free will problem at, at, at yeah, some yeah. point. I guess it's a must for every philosopher to broach the topic of free will at some point. So, That's right. Uh, get it, now moving to the topic of this conversation, what motivated you particularly to write a book about free will? Because there have been so many. What motivated you to write one more? Yeah, so that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, for a long time, I had um, primarily a sort of hobby interest in the topic of free will, albeit as a um, professional philosopher or a teacher of philosophy. Um, um, and um, I started developing a particular uh, view on this uh, subject, and this view became clearer in my mind um, over time. And I had many conversations and discussions with friends, colleagues, and then uh, subsequently I also started doing um, a fair amount of teaching in this area in and around the philosophy of mind, also covering the topic of free will. And um, uh, and uh, so step by step, um, I became um, you know, more and more uh, convinced that uh, I had an angle uh, on this subject that was worth developing more fully. And um, one um, you know, slightly more concrete uh, occasion that, that, that also uh, prompted this uh, was my um, visit to uh, the Harvard Law School um, a few years ago, where I was a visiting professor, and I had the opportunity to interact with um, many lawyers and uh, law students. Um, and uh, the conversations I had there um, made it even more salient to me that the topic of free will um, uh, is of uh, such broad and, and general interest and continues to be of great significance for um, debates about responsibility and the law. And in recent years, um, 
there has also been an increasing uh, level of interest in the um, overlap between neuroscience and, and the law. So, for instance, do new findings from neuroscience um, challenge our conventional understanding of um, responsibility and morality and the law? And uh, there, there is clearly um, a, a strong appetite in uh, you know, making some intellectual progress uh, on, on, these, uh, on these topics. And that, that was a further um, inspiration for me to um, work on this book project. Yeah, if I could just add to that, I've read uh, Sam Harris, Dan Dennett, Jerry Coyne on this topic, but the point of view that you bring is truly novel. There's something new to say. And for the audience listening, I'd highly recommend reading this book. But uh, so I noticed you started your book with a quote by the evolutionary biologist, uh, Jerry Coyne. And he says the following, our thoughts and actions are the outputs of a computer made of meat, our brain, a computer that must obey the laws of physics. Our choices, therefore, must also obey those laws. He goes on to ask the question, so why does the term free will still hang around when science has destroyed its conventional meaning? So let me put that question to you. Why do you think the term free will still hangs around? Yeah, so I think there are many reasons. Um, first of all, um, I think we all have a very strong sense that when we make um, choices, when we go about our daily lives, um, uh, we um, are free in making our choices. I mean, I'll just give you some trivial um, examples. This morning, um, I had breakfast uh, and I had a choice between um, coffee and tea, as it happens, uh, both were available. And I chose to have um, tea, but I could have had um, coffee instead. I had a very clear sense that um, this was entirely um, up to me. Um, that's a very trivial example. Or for your um, listeners, um, they will presumably feel that it's their free choice to uh, switch on this program or to switch it off. And again, that this is uh, entirely up to them. If they now feel um, you know, that they've had enough and they want to switch it off, um, they can entirely uh, freely do so. Nothing um, you know, compels them one way or, or the other. But if we now turn to more um, uh, significant matters, um, you know, when you think about um, um, which um, career plan to pursue, um, which university to apply to, um, um, you know, whether to get married, all of these major decisions where we feel uh, that there is a real fork in the road uh, ahead of us in our lives, we also have a sense that uh, it is ultimately up to us um, what decisions we make. That's a very powerful intuition that um, human beings um, you know, very widely share and there's um, a fair amount of evidence also from um, psychological research that this free will intuition um, is present um, already uh, among relatively young um, people. So that's already uh, something that we need to at least take seriously. We have this very strong intuition uh, of, of free will. Now, of course, intuitions could be mistaken, and that's, uh, that, that's uh, um, a point to, to, to recognize, but, but still it's a powerful intuition to, to take seriously. Furthermore, this idea that we have free will um, 
over and above uh, being supported by this powerful intuition is also quite central to um, the entire activity of deliberation about our choices. You know, when we are faced with a major decision or faced with a moral dilemma or something like this, and we ask ourselves, what should we do? Um, the whole act of deliberation presupposes that uh, different choices are available to us. If we, if we didn't really think that we had different options um, between which to choose, um, the entire activity of deliberation would, would somehow um, lose its, its significance. And then thirdly, um, the notion of responsibility um, is uh, quite central to um, the way in which um, human societies uh, uh, are organized, um, both um, at the level of morality and also in our legal uh, systems. And um, at least conventionally, we um, usually assume that free will is a necessary condition for responsibility. I mean, this is a complicated topic and we can talk more about uh, this, um, but uh, it would seem that um, without free will, um, our practices of assigning responsibility to uh, one another um, would uh, potentially be in trouble. So I think these are at least three significant reasons as to why this concept still plays a very important uh, role for us. Yeah, so I think I completely agree with you that we all have a sense of free will. We have this intuition that we could have done otherwise. And I don't even think Jerry Coyne is questioning that intuition. What he, I think the question he's asking is, why does the term free will still hang around in the scientific community? So when people are thinking rationally from a third person perspective, knowing everything about the laws of nature, why do they still believe in free will? So let's go back to your trivial case about choosing coffee over tea. So you feel like you said you could have chosen tea, but you chose coffee. But if I were to rewind the tape of the universe and bring the universe back to precisely the state it was in, when you chose coffee, you would choose coffee all over again helplessly. Because it's the state of the universe that dictates what you will do. So that would be the case that would be put forth by Jedi Coin. How would you respond to that? Yeah, so there's a lot to, to say here. Um, I mean, first of all, um, this line of reasoning um, assumes that the universe is um, deterministic. Um, now, determinism uh, uh, can be defined in a variety of ways, but um, a simple and straightforward um, definition of physical determinism is, is, is this. The universe is um, deterministic at the physical level. Um, if and only if um, fixing the state of the universe at a particular point in time or fixing the states of the universe up to a particular point in time um, uh, is uh, consistent only um, with um, one single future trajectory of uh, states of the universe and um, so that um, uh, you, it's never possible to um, have, let's say, two different uh, trajectories of um, physical states of the universe that coincide up to a particular time t 
and then somehow branch out in different directions. Uh, what I would say in response to this, uh, in response to this rewinding um, argument, is that um, we need to um, very carefully distinguish between different um, levels at which we can um, describe the universe, um, speak about systems, speak about the world. And when we um, analyze um, human decision-making, we have to make sure that we do this at the right level of um, description. And I mean, maybe I need to um, build this up a little bit before then coming back to the, to, to the rewinding argument. Um, so think about uh, fundamental physics on the one hand um, versus chemistry on the other hand. Um, when we describe um, systems um, in chemical terms, um, we use uh, different concepts and categories than, we than when we describe those systems uh, in terms of fundamental physics. When we describe systems in biological terms, again, we use uh, uh, you know, very different concepts and categories. So for instance, um, biological systems uh, would be described um, by reference to um, cells, uh, by reference to organisms, um, various mechanisms of life. And uh, you know, none of this would feature in um, purely physical descriptions um, of uh, a system. So for instance, um, in a description of the world um, that we give through the lens of quantum mechanics, uh, you won't find cells, you won't find organisms, you won't find the mechanisms of life. Instead, you'll find um, you know, Schrodinger wave functions and uh, you can then um, specify them in a variety of ways. Now, um, when we move from fundamental physical descriptions to chemical descriptions and from chemical descriptions to biological ones and then to psychological ones and um, social scientific ones, um, we um, uh, deliberately engage in a certain process of um, abstraction or um, coarse graining as we may call it. That is to say um, uh, we um, abstract away from certain underlying, let's say, physical uh, detail, specifically in order to pick up um, the higher level regularities that we're interested in. Um, that even, an, even something as, as simple as a cell already consists of a very, very large number of uh, elementary particles. But when we want to study how the cell functions, um, we deliberately, and for very good scientific reason, abstract away from the details of the uh, underlying elementary particles. And when we focus on an organism and what the organism does, um, uh, where the organism consists of gazillions of cells, again, we deliberately abstract away from the details of what goes on in all of these cells uh, in order to pick up the right, uh, the relevant uh, patterns and regularities at the level of the, of the organism. Now, the rewinding argument that you're presenting um, focuses on um, the uh, fully specified physical state of the of the universe, um, and then it talks about uh, you know what would happen if we were to hypothetically rewind the universe back to 
a previous fully specified um, microphysical state. And the argument then says, well, if the universe is uh, de de deterministic, then um, presumably the subsequent trajectory of states would unfold once again in exactly the same way. That, that's basically what the argument yeah. says. Um, but it's not clear that um, this um, microphysical um, description of the of the universe that uh, is assumed here is really the appropriate one for thinking about um, human agency and uh, human human choice. Uh, after all, as I've just noted, we can describe the universe at many different levels, um, not just the microphysical one, but these various higher levels that are um, somewhat more abstract, somewhat more coarse-grained, but for very good scientific reasons. And so the question that we need to ask uh, for what I would consider a legitimate rewinding argument um, about human decision-making is, um, well, um, what would happen or how could the universe or would the universe unfold if we were to rewind everything um, back to a previous state, but where um, we focus not on the microphysical state, but on the macroscopic state that is described um, as fully, um, as appropriate at the level of description of the psychological, human and social sciences that we use to um, describe and explain human decision-making. So we rewind not so much the microstate, but rewind the macrostate. So we um, hold all the macroscopic facts uh, um, uh, fixed as they, as they were before. We hold um, the relevant um, agents or decision-makers or people's uh, you know, psychological states fixed exactly as they were before. We hold their... Um, macroscopic social environments uh, fixed exactly as they as they were before, um, but we focus on um, uh, you know what we, we focus on all of this at the um, psychological level of description rather than the microphysical level of description, and if we do that, then it is actually far from clear um, that this macroscopic um, trajectory. Um, would uh, necessarily have to unfold once again in exactly the same way, uh, precisely because, and I guess we'll come back to this, uh, at the psychological level, um, there are good reasons to think uh, that we don't have determinism, but rather um, some, some form of, of, of indeterminism. All right, uh, so two points that I think free will skeptics would like to make here. Uh, Firstly, uh, the thought experiment of rewinding the tape is mainly to question this intuition of could you have done otherwise? Because most people think that they could have chosen tea instead of coffee. But the only way they could have chosen tea instead of coffee is if the universe was in a different state. If the universe was in the same state, you would choose coffee. So I think that is the intuition that people are pressing up against. And the second point I'd like to make is you quite rightly point out that there are different levels of analysis or different categories. So 
you can look at the universe at the level of sub uh, subatomic particles and you can look at it at the level of economic systems now if you're looking for something like unemployment you won't find it at the level of molecular biology so you need different levels of analysis and we have very good scientific reasons to use those different levels of analysis but the question that skeptics will ask is that these levels of analysis have to be consistent with each other so a finding in one level of analysis can't contradict a finding in another so to take the example of physics and economics if we found out that schrodinger's wave function contradicted the phenomena of unemployment then either unemployment doesn't exist or schrodinger's wave function is wrong both of them can't contradict each other and still be true so the case that skeptics make is that determinism or causality in general is completely at odds with the idea of free will how do you respond to that yeah i agree with you that um uh, we we want to have um a picture of the world uh, that is uh, coherent and we uh, don't want it to be the case um that um um our best scientific um theories about how higher level phenomena are somehow um in logical conflict with our best scientific theories about lower level phenomena i i com- completely accept that that point but um the claim that i'm making and which was um in the background uh, in my response to this rewinding argument um is that um indeterminism at the psychological level or at what i call the agential level is actually uh fully compatible with determinism at the physical level um so i except that if somehow physical determinism um were to imply determinism at all the other higher levels as well then um uh, my argument would indeed run into this uh, incoherence problem that that you've described um but um my point which i'm now um going to explain um is that um there is no conflict at all between um lower level determinism and higher level indeterminism indeed there would be also no conflict between lower level indeterminism and higher level determinism now i think in the um debate about free will um people usually um think that we should uh, simply ask whether the universe is deterministic or indeterministic um simpliciter and it's sort of tempting to think that um you know we just look at the universe as such and then ask you know is this a deterministic system or is this an indeterministic system and uh, then we we somehow um uh, you know settled uh, that uh, question uh, in, in a way that uh, is is then relevant um for instance for the free will debate and a bunch of other debates about um, various uh, higher level phenomena but i think that's a mistake um i've come to the conclusion um uh, that the um distinction between determinism and indeterminism can only be drawn relative to a particular 
level of description at which we are looking at a system. So whenever you investigate some, some system, um, you know, whatever it is, some system that you study in the sciences, maybe the universe as a whole, um, before you can meaningfully say uh, whether the system is deterministic or indeterministic, you first need to be clear about um, the level of description at which you're operating. Once you fix the level, then relative to that level, um, uh, there may be a well-defined uh, answer about the determinism, indeterminism um, question. There are um, a number of examples of this, of this sort of um, phenomenon. Uh, you could have a system described at the level of um, you know, classical physics, which behaves deterministically, and then um, the system um, could be uh, re-described at the level of statistical mechanics, for instance, and the system looks like uh, an indeterministic uh, system. Um, arguably, weather systems uh, are exactly like, like this. So you could think of the um, Earth's atmosphere um, at a microphysical level as a deterministic uh, system, which consists of a very, 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 very large number of um, air molecules. And um, you know, one might assume that each air molecule um, behaves entirely deterministically. Um, uh, yet when we move uh, away from this microphysical description to a more um, coarse-grained uh, description of the of, of the atmosphere in terms of more macroscopic variables, um, the atmosphere can behave um, indeterministically. So far, that's just a, I, I think, a technical point which is very hard to um, contest. Now, some people will say, well, um, whenever we've got this. Um, apparent higher level indeterminism, we shouldn't think of this as real indeterminism, but we should just think of this as a purely epistemic phenomenon, um, as a byproduct of um, incomplete information that we have about the higher level states, or because we don't have detailed information about the microstate, um, um, we uh, are not able to make those deterministic predictions. And so therefore, um, it, it looks as if the system is macroscopically uh, indeterministic, but uh, in, in reality, so the, this line of reasoning goes, um, the, the system um, you know, still remains a, a deterministic um, system. But um, my response here is that, um, for a variety of reasons, this nearly epistemic interpretation of higher level indeterminism is, is not quite um, satisfactory. Um, and I mean, I could spell out these reasons. I mean, I, I just give you perhaps a, a, a couple of them. Um, one uh, reason is that, you know, we can't even be sure that there is uh, one definitive fundamental level uh, at which we could settle determinism, indeterminism facts sort of once and for all, but it is at least um, conceivable that we are faced with a kind of, um, uh, you know, bottomless uh, hierarchy of levels. So, you know, whichever level you identify, there are even lower levels below that. 
um, uh, even more um, fine-grained. And it is conceivable, um, in fact, in, entirely coherent, at least as a thought experiment, that in such a system, uh, each time you find you found a um, level at which the system behaves deterministically, there is an even lower level at which the system behaves indeterministically, and then there is an even lower level at which it behaves deterministically again. So at, at a bottomless hierarchy of levels where, let's say, you've got determinism at odd-numbered levels and indeterminism at even-numbered levels, that's entirely coherent. And in this case, in this sort of scenario, it wouldn't make sense at all to say, um, that the system is deterministic as such, or that this, the system is indeterministic as such, because there is no um, privileged fundamental level at which you could settle this, this question um, definitively. Now, that's sort of one consideration that, you know, speaks, um, uh, that, that, that speaks against the, 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 you know, merely epistemic interpretation of higher level indeterminism. Another consideration is that um, it's generally good scientific practice um, to take um, the um, picture of the world that uh, is given to us by our best scientific theories of a particular domain at, at face value. Um, so we do so uh, across the various um, uh, sciences, not just in physics. I mean, if physics tells us, if our best physical theories tell us that um, the Higgs boson is real, then um, we are inclined to take this at face value and be realists about the Higgs boson. If our um, um, best biological theories um, tell us that, that there are cells and organisms and metabolic processes, again, we are inclined to be um, realists about those phenomena as well. If our best economic theories tell us um, that um, there are phenomena such as um, unemployment, production, inequality. Then, you know, once again, we, we take those phenomena um, uh, seriously and uh, consider them to be uh, real phenomena. So in all of these cases, when our best scientific theories um, attribute a particular property to the, to the world, we, 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 we are inclined to be realists about that, that property. And, the same line of reasoning uh, convinces me that when our best scientific theories of a particular um, phenomenon describe that phenomenon as a deterministic system or as an indeterministic system, um, then um, uh, we should be realists about uh, that description as well. So if, if it so happens that our best scientific theories about the weather um, describe the weather system as an indeterministic system. If 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 that's the case, um, then we have very good reasons to to uh, to take um, let's say atmospheric indeterminism um, or seriously as a as a real phenomenon. And so it goes. I argue with um, uh, agential level. Indeterminism. If our best theories of agency, our best theories of of psychology, um, uh, depict um, human decision making or human psychology as involving certain forms of indeterminism, uh, then we have very good reasons to, um, you know, treat this as a real phenomenon. Okay. 
So a, a few points here. I think firstly, I think I have a point of confusion here about we can have physical determinism and still have agential indeterminism, but all agents are. Let's take humans for concreteness. So all humans are are physical systems. So how can we have physical determinism and still have physical systems that are indeterministic? Are you adding something non-physical into the agent mix? Um, so it's true that the human organism is a physical system that is uh, is, is undeniable, um, and uh, it, and for you know for some purposes, of course, uh, we uh, also describe the human organism as a as a physical um, system, um, but. Um, when we um, uh, represent um, humans not so much as um, physical organisms, but when we represent uh, humans as um, intentional agents or uh, decision makers, for instance, in our psychological theories or in our social scientific theories, um, then in effect, we are abandoning the purely physical uh, description of them, and we're moving instead to a um, psychological or intentional description in which we um, uh, attribute to humans, for instance, um, mental states, where those mental states um, um, are not just uh, uh, meant to causally explain human behavior, but they also meant to stand in certain um, you know, rationalizing relations to, to human behavior. So we make use of a very different logic of explanation um, uh, uh, that um, invokes uh, psychological and intentional concepts and categories and not merely um, uh, physical ones. And so for, for, for this reason, um, uh, it's, it's important uh, to note that um, uh, you know, we need not think of humans uh, just in sort of reductionistic physical terms, but we can think of uh, humans also in non-reductionistic, um, agential and psychological terms. That in turn does not um, uh, involve any sort of dubious, um, you know, Cartesian dualism, you know, postulating uh, something immaterial that is... Uh, added into the mix uh, and, you know, thrown into our ontology over and above the uh, physical building blocks. Um, rather, um, uh, in uh, the philosophy of mind, we uh, tend to say that, um, you know, mental states um, supervene on physical states. So that is to say they are, um, in, in some sense, necessary emergent byproducts of underlying physical states that it would be impossible um, for the um, various underlying bodily states to be there without the mental state uh, also occurring as an inevitable byproduct. And yet, um, despite supervening on these underlying physical states, um, mental states are not necessarily um, identical to and reducible to those underlying um, physical states. So that is to say we need to use very different concepts and categories to, to describe those mental states. And uh, they are um, 
may not exist some kind of translation manual uh, that allows you to say, for instance, an, ag an agent is in such and such mental state. For instance, this person has such and such system of beliefs and preferences and desires and so on, if and only if the physical configuration of their um, uh, brain is, is such and such. Uh, this, this kind of explicit translation manual um, uh, may, not, uh, may not be available. And for this reason, the, um, the mental vocabulary in order to um, describe mental and psychological states uh, may, may actually be explanatorily indispensable for um, various purposes. Okay, so let me just make a point of clarification for the audience uh, that you're not making an epistemic case for free will. So you're not saying given the knowledge we have today, this is the best way to describe it. You're making an ontological case that this is actually a reality in the physical world and this is how we should understand how the universe actually works, irrespective of what knowledge we get in the future. Is that a fair assessment? That's that's correct, yeah. So I don't want to say uh, just that um, um, free will is somehow an illusion that we cling to because we have incomplete information or incomplete understanding of the underlying physical state. Rather, I want to say that free will is a um, real phenomenon, um, no less real than, than other higher level um, phenomena such as economic, social, biological um, phenomena. Uh, and um, indeed, um, our best scientific understanding of um, human behavior and human decision making um, implicitly has to rely on the presupposition of um, free will in order for our intentional explanations of um, human behavior to even get off the ground. Uh, yeah, so uh, I just want to respond to a point you made earlier about our mental states supervene on the physical states of our brain. The way free will skeptics or determinists would describe the state is our mental states are actually caused by our by the physical state of our brain there is no more mental state than what your brain produces your brain is the sum totality of your mental state so let me just give you a study that kind of pushes back against this idea of free will and this is the Libet study that I know you're aware of and its variants. So the most recent variant of the Libet study that I know of is the Berlin study of 2013, where they used fMRI brain scanning technology. And what they did was they asked subjects to make a very simple decision, like raising their right or left hand or choosing to add or subtract a set of numbers. And the subjects were also shown a clock at the same time. And they were asked to remember the precise moment when they consciously decided one way or another. So, and when the results of the study came back, they were astounding, at least to me. What they found was that the scientists, just by looking at the state of your brain, could predict six to eight seconds in advance of you knowing what you will choose. So picture this, you're sitting deciding to raise your right or left hand and eight seconds before you have consciously made the decision 
the scientist knows what your decision will be with some error of course but this suggests that you don't make the decision at all the decision is made for you by your brain and you're helplessly implementing it so how do you respond to this sort of argument yes um so these liver type studies um uh, are usually structured as follows the um subject um is asked to make some kind of spontaneous voluntary choice for instance press a button left or right this this kind of thing um uh, they are asked to look at an uh, easily visible clock and remember at which particular point in time they um, made the conscious decision what they want to do whether to press the button or whether to go left or left or right um uh at the same time uh, their brain activity is measured and then usually it emerges um that there is some um uh, neural uh, activity uh, often called a neuronal readiness potential um that is detectable um a certain short time period prior to the subject's conscious awareness of the decision and which in turn is still a little bit prior to the implementation of the of 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 the action and then the um, yeah the the original interpretation that uh, libet uh, and and then others uh, offered was that the real cause of the action is not the conscious decision but the neuronal readiness uh, potential and you know this um more recent study uh, is a little bit more dramatic because in the case of the original libet study um uh, the the time intervals involved were fractions of a second and and uh, here the time interval uh, at which the neuronal readiness potential is detectable you know prior to the uh, apparent conscious decision is is a little bit longer um what should we say here um well the first thing to note and that's a point that libet himself already noted um was that um after the neuronal readiness potential is detectable um the subject is not yet on a sort of completely predetermined uh, path towards making the decision but the subject still has the opportunity to um abandon that that decision a little bit later so libet himself i think at some point uh, suggested that um this kind of finding still leaves room for um what you might call free will and even if it doesn't leave room for um free will and surely at, uh, in the case of this small um uh, dramatic study this uh, point is is even more applicable because if um if humans uh, did not have the um ability to um abandon these uh courses of action uh, over the time period of uh, of of seconds you know we we would all already have died in in, in road accidents because we need to be able to respond much more quickly so all of these uh, perhaps initially intended actions can can actually typically still be abandoned much later so that's one point to to note um um a second point uh to note um is um that uh if you um uh, if you accept the um 
physicalist picture of uh, the world in which mental states uh, are not completely immaterial, but are um, physically implemented uh, within uh, the, the brain as a biological organ, then you would, of course, expect that there has to be a physical implementation mechanism um, in, inside the, the brain. I mean, it, it would actually be uh, truly challenging and remarkable um, if the conscious decision uh, somehow preceded the neuronal readiness potential. I mean, at that point, I think we'd have a sort of real challenge from of 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 the of of the supernatural. So that's something we we cannot we cannot ex expect. In fact, uh, uh, you know, if um, the human mind uh, is ultimately an emergent uh, product of underlying physics, then the neuronal readiness potential. Uh, has to, at the very least, accompany the conscious decision, if not um, ever so uh, slightly um, preceded. Um, and um, and then, um, furthermore, not only can these um, uh, initially intended uh, actions be subsequently abandoned, uh, but um, the detection of the neuronal readiness potential uh, only ever gives us a sort of probabilistic um, ability to predict the resulting decision. So there's a certain correlation there, um, you know, better or worse, depending on the details of the experimental design, but it is far from perfect. And now I give you a, a much more um, mundane example to, to show that um, this is perhaps less striking than it, than it may seem. Those people who um, know me well uh, also know and understand my preferences quite well. So um, uh, I um, I don't really drink alcohol. Um, so people who know me well and who know this fact about me will be able to predict, you know, much better than <laughs> than uh, Libet or others in this experimental literature without even using any, any brain scans uh, that, you know, when they put me into a bar or a restaurant or something like this, I'm going to order a soft drink uh, rather than an alcoholic uh, beverage. They, they're going to predict this and their predictive success is, is, is dramatic. So let's say it's kind of 100% minus, uh, mi minus epsilon. But does this mean... Um, that I uh, lack the ability to to choose otherwise. A absolutely not. I mean, what's going on when you um, you know give me the choice in a in a bar or in a restaurant between the soft drink and the alcoholic beverages? I genuinely have these two options. I could choose one or the other. Each time you take me there, I could choose one or the other. There's absolutely nothing that. Um, you know, renders it impossible for me to, to choose the alcoholic beverage, even though, um, given my preference that I quite stably have, um, you know, I make one choice uh, rather than the other. So one lesson that we can learn from this is that mere predictability uh, of um, a person's choice uh, does not entail that this choice is 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 unfree. Um, that I think is a sort of it's a it's a conceptual mistake to think that when a choice is predictable, it's it's unfree. It's a tempting it's a tempting mistake. Um, but I mean, you can easily come up with with you know many other uh, examples uh, that um, 
would illustrate the same point. I mean, suppose, you know, after, after graduating, you um, apply for jobs and let's suppose you have two different job offers and one job is really, really great and, uh, uh, you know, allows you to pursue your, your dream career and the other job is, is you know, not, not so attractive. You know, maybe the, the, the working conditions are less good, the salary is worse, maybe it's in a, in a city or a town which is much less attractive and so on and so on. So it's fairly predictable which of those two um, options you're then going to pursue. Nonetheless, that doesn't eliminate the choice. You have a genuine choice there, even though um, given your preferences and the situation in which you are, um, you're going to go for one of them rather than, than the other. But none of this really um, contradicts the existence of a free choice at, 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 at this point. Um, Okay, so uh, about uh, the bar example or the example of me choosing one job over another, what Sam Harris, the author, says about this is you can do what you decide to do, but you cannot decide what you decide to do. So in a sense, yes, you did. You can choose every time not to drink alcohol, but your preference of not drinking alcohol is fundamentally mysterious. That was built into the system and it wasn't built in by you. It was built in by your genes and your environment and every all the sum totality of influences to the system. So uh, you can respond to that, but uh, first I just want, actually you can respond to that and then we'll move on to the case of Charles Whitman. We need to be clear about... Um you know, what, what we are after when we are um, trying to identify um, uh, free will. Um, so, you know, one question is, um, uh, when I am faced with a choice um, between different options, um, are these different options genuinely open to me? Are these different options genuine possibilities uh, for me such that, um, you know, each of these options is a possible choice that, that I could make? That's one question that we um, uh, might ask. So for instance, you offer me coffee or tea. Um, is it genuinely possible for me to do one or, or the other such that, um, you know, I'm, I'm faced with a, with a free choice here? Um, and my answer to this question is, yes, absolutely, we face such choices between different options all the time. And, uh, and those um, uh, choices uh, can be appropriately um, thought of as free choices that we make out of our own free will. That's one, that's, uh, that's one question. Another question is, you know, what are the um, factors uh, that um, influence my um, my choice making. What are the factors um, in the background that influence my psychological state, my preferences, my beliefs, and and so on? Obviously, when I face a choice, um, I don't uh, face this choice in a vacuum. But I have certain preferences, I have certain beliefs, I have certain values, I have certain information, and and all of this feeds into my deliberation. Now. Um, um, 
one can then ask, well, where do those um, preferences and beliefs and values and information, where does all of this come from? Um, and clearly some of this uh, is influenced and constrained and affected in a variety of ways by our environment, our background. I mean, that is just totally um, undeniable. If we wanted to um, you know, establish that we make choices uh, in a complete uh, vacuum without such um, uh, you know, prior constraints and without being affected by those background factors at all, if that's what we're looking for, that's kind of asking too much. I mean, that's not uh, that. That's really not um, what I, I think um, free will requires, or can be reasonably uh, uh, be be said to 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 require. You know, sometimes people distinguish um, between um, uh, be, between having. Um, uh, Choices that you make out of our out of your own free will on the one hand, and having some kind of ultimate responsibility. The idea being that not only are you responsible for that choice and how you make that choice, but uh, you're also responsible for the various preconditions. So you're responsible for, uh, let's say, your preferences, and you're responsible for whatever led to the formation of those preferences and whatever led to the preconditions for the formation of those preferences and, and so on. And it's it's very easy to see that if you're looking for ultimate responsibility, um you're you're just not going to you're just not going to find it. I mean even if you've uh, even if you've kind of actively shaped your preferences uh, over time by reflecting very carefully about various issues and deliberating about your values and that has maybe actively led you to um, you know, push your value system in one direction rather than another. Uh, you know, none of this has happened in a in a in a vacuum. And, you know, at 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 some point, um, you, know, you you were a little child and you had a you had a background. And undeniably, if you <laughs> go back along that trajectory, there'll be some external factors influencing this uh, history uh, that you've you've gone through as as an agent. And to suggest that. Um, you know, free will um, requires um, uh, some form of ultimate responsibility that you can trace back to absolutely all the, uh, you know, preconditions. That's just, that's just asking too much. And that's, an, that would be an, an unrealistic and unreasonable notion of, of, of free will. Yeah, I, uh, just to add to that, I think Dan Dennett calls this degrees of freedom. So, Yes, you don't have infinite degrees of freedom. There are some constraints like your inbuilt preferences, your genes, your environment. But that doesn't mean you're completely constrained. You still have some freedom. You, and as Dan Dennett puts it, we have billions of degrees of freedom, but not infinite degrees of freedom. So even if there are some constraints, that doesn't evaporate the notion of free will. There would still be some free will. But here's a case that uh, free will skeptics put to believers in free will as a case that completely evaporates any notion of free will. And this is the case of Charles Whitman. To them, this is a sort of reductio ad absurdum to the whole notion of free will. And uh, let me just describe the case for the audience and then you can respond to it. In 1966, Charles Whitman murdered his wife and mother in the middle of the night. 
The next morning, he purchased guns, ammunition, and other supplies and drove to the nearby clock tower in the University of Texas. He then shot and killed 13 people and left 32 wounded before police fatally shot him. Now, notice here that Charles Whitman, to most people, is the prototypical case of evil. If anyone deserves to be punished, it's this man. But this is where the case of Charles Whitman gets interesting. So Charles Whitman knew he was going to die, and he wrote a suicide letter which was in his pocket. And he wrote the following. I don't quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I don't really understand myself these days. I'm supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately I have been the victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. And he requested that an autopsy be performed on his brain to see if there was something physically wrong with his brain. And what they found was that there was a brain tumor pressing up against his amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain. And what skeptics of free will say through this case is that if he had a completed understanding of the brain, if he understood all the neurological causes for all of our actions, every act of evil from Charles Whit- from Ted Bundy to Hitler would look just like Charles Whitman's brain tumor. So how do you respond to the case of Charles Whitman? Do you think he had free will and how do you respond to the broader critique? On the picture of free will that I defend, um, free will requires three things. Um, It requires um, intentional agency, it requires alternative possibilities to choose from, and it requires um, causal control over one's actions, um, which is sometimes also called um, mental causation. Um, And um, each of these is a particular capacity um, that um, uh, humans uh, typically um, have. Uh, And so to qualify as having full free will, you need to have um, you know, fully functioning capacities as an intentional agent. You need to have the capacity to choose between alternative possibilities and uh, the capacity of causal control over, uh, over your actions. Um, now, and, and moreover, these, these three capacities, uh, as I've suggested, um, uh, should be thought of not as um, merely physical or purely physical properties of the um, human organism as a physical system, but they should really be thought of as, as emergent higher level properties of um, humans qua intentional agents. Um, now, um, uh, when we investigate um, whether um, a particular person has free will, we need to ask um, whether these three um, psychological or agential level properties are present in that um, person. Um, uh, And I mean, we can agree, I mean, you've already um, mentioned sort of degrees of of, of freedom. We can certainly agree that these capacities can be um, uh, present to a, a greater or, or lesser extent, these capacities could be fully present. These capacities could be compromised in a in a variety of uh, of ways. Just to give a very simple example, um, when uh, someone is intoxicated or or drunk, um, 
their capacities as an intentional agent are um, compromised in a in a variety of of, of ways, um, which would not uh, absolve them of of responsibility. I mean, if someone gets you know terribly drunk and then commits a violent act, they will still be held responsible. But the reasoning here is presumably that um, you know while they didn't have full agential control. Uh, while being drunk and intoxicated, uh, they they did have the full agential capacities when they decided to get uh, drunk in the first place, and it, they did so knowingly and willingly, and presumably thereby also um, should have recognized that uh, you know they were embarked on a potentially uh, you know da- dangerous or risky uh, course course of action. So far, so so far, so good. Now, um, the example of um, Charles uh, Whitman uh, is is one where um, the uh, the autopsy then um, uh, revealed uh, that uh, there was a, a tumor, and although um, at the time and probably even nowadays, um, the precise psychological manifestation of this. Um, uh, of this lesion was was not uh, fully understood. Um, uh, from the description of the case, uh, we can assume that that this tumor did indeed uh, have, you know, significant psychological and behavioral uh, repercussions um, for this uh, for 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 this person. For instance, such that um, certain capacities for regulating and controlling um, emotional responses, aggressions, and so on, uh, you know, were very significantly compromised or in, in inhibited. Um, this, I, I think, leads to the reasonable conclusion that uh, Whitman's agential capacities um, were quite significantly uh, compromised had he had he survived and uh, had he then uh, been uh, um, had he then been charged and if there had been a trial, it is at least uh, conceivable that this uh, tumor, if it had been diagnosed, um, uh, would have um, had some effect on the. Uh, on, on, on the on the verdict of, of that trial, he may very well have been found uh, less culpable uh, than he would have been uh, without that 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 tumor, and he might have been sent at least in part for for medical treatment for that uh, for that uh, for that tumor. Okay, so uh, the what skeptics say is that. In the case of Charles Whitman, like you acknowledge, that his agential capacity was to some extent impaired, right? It wasn't perfectly functioning. So when people look at Charles Whitman and then see the tumor, they think he was a victim of bad biology. He just had the wrong tumor in the wrong part of his brain that compelled him to commit these atrocities. But I don't really see a substantive difference between... Charles Whitman and say someone who doesn't have a tumor but commits atrocities because the only difference is our ignorance of the proximate neurological causes. In Charles Whitman's case, we can see that it's a tumor. 
but in other cases maybe we can't see the neurological cause but we we can be sure that the cause is at the end of the day neurological if um we really had a successful um reductionistic and deterministic theory of human behavior one that fully accounts for human behavior uh solely by um describing um the brain um as a and and body as a physical system um and you know without any reference to mental states without any intentionality descriptions without any you know psychological uh features um uh then that would indeed put very significant pressure on the on the very idea of free will because that would then suggest uh that free will is just a an description of of folk psychology which is dispensable in a scientific picture of uh, human behavior and that's the sort of thought i think that underlies the way in which free will skeptics employ um the 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 whitman um story by by analogy um but uh i i very much uh uh challenged the the assumption here the assumption that um that we will find or that there is a uh a successful um reductionistic and deterministic uh theory of psychology uh, to be found um and um my and admittedly scientific uh, hypothesis uh is uh that um the picture of um humans as choice making agents um with um intentional psychological states uh will remain explanatorily indispensable now that's a scientific hypothesis about um the best uh theories of human psychology which which we can which we can debate um but um if i'm uh if i'm uh, right uh, uh in holding this 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 hypothesis um uh, you know then i would um point out that um uh, unless um there's some kind of specific neurological condition uh that uh, has a discernible psychological manifestation like whitman's tumor um which would compromise this person's agential capacities um there's absolutely no reason um to deny the uh, reality of uh and presence of intentional agency uh in um a human with a normally functioning um uh, brain and 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 organism i mean the, the the reason why the why um free will um was uh, arguably compromised or impaired in whitman's case was precisely uh, that um this specific um physical feature of his brain this this lesion this this tumor um uh, had um a, a higher level repercussion of you know significantly impairing his agential capacities whereas in the case of you know someone else um uh whose um you know brain is com- completely free from such lesion- lesions and is entirely normally functioning 
um, uh, there is we, we have no good scientific reason um, to um, uh, to withhold the ascription of full-blown agential capacities. Okay. Uh, the claim you made at the beginning, I just want to underscore that because that was a fascinating one, that it's very rare that in the debate of free will you hear someone say that their claim is falsifiable. You're saying that your claim is, in fact, a scientifically falsifiable claim. And if skeptics doubt your claim, they can produce the evidence to prove you wrong. Is, is that accurate? That's, that's accurate. So um, what, what I'm saying uh, is that um, the, the, um, the, the crucial question for the debate about free will is um, what are our best um, explanatory um, theories uh, uh, to account for that that account for 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 human behavior. If our best explanatory um, theories um, represent um, humans as choice making agents with intentional agency, um, with the ability to choose between alternative possibilities and with causal control over their actions, if that's how our best explanatory theories um, depict um, um, uh, humans, um, then um, the um, hypothesis uh, that, that there is free will is, is vindicated by those theories. If on the other hand, um, our best um, explanatory theories, um, um, you know, managed to dispense with the ascription of um, agency, choice, and mental causation to to humans, and instead um, represent humans as um, you know purely physical, chemical, or biological systems with certain causal processes and and nothing else. Um, then that would speak against the hypothesis that that there is um, free will. Um, okay, uh, so I'm mindful of your time. So there's just this last topic that I think is quite important before I let you go, and that is how your conception of free will applies to robots or artificially intelligent systems in general. So let's take the case of Alpha Zero, the chess playing computer built by Google a couple of years ago. It's now the world's best chess playing computer, better than any human, of course. And everything that you said about humans that carves out a space for free will seems to be true about this supercomputer. It's a goal-directed intentional agent with the intention to win the game of chess. It can make alternative choices. It could make different moves in the game of chess. It analyzes information. It has memories that play a salient role. So what is the freedom that humans have, but this supercomputer or any supercomputer of the future will not have? Yes, so in general, I would say that um, if we um, understand free will the way I do, namely as requiring intentional agency, um, alternative possibilities to choose from and causal control over one's actions, then, um, uh, it becomes entirely possible that um, entities or systems other than human beings um, could also um, 
qualify as having free will. Um, so for any entity, you know, whether human or non-human, um, we can ask, well, does this entity have intentional agency? Does it have um, the capacity to choose between alternative possibilities? Does it have um, some form of mental causation or causal control over its actions? If the answer is yes, then that an entity has some form of free will, um, you know, which could be more rudimentary, depending on the nature of the entity. Uh, if the answer is no, it it it, it doesn't. Um, so if we look at um, um, chimpanzees, for instance, I think it's um, very reasonable to argue that chimpanzees have intentional agency, although their agential capacities are not quite the same as human capacities. But there is a but but there clearly are some sophisticated in, uh, agential capacities there. They they also have the capacity of choice between alternative possibilities, and they um, have um, causal control over their over their actions. And so there is, it's perfectly reasonable, I think, to conclude that chimpanzees um, have a form of, of free will. Of course, because their um, cognitive capacities are different from the human ones, and for instance, they lack um, the capacity uh, to engage in this kind of rich normative moral cognition that that we engage in, um, they would not uh, satisfy the, the conditions for being held responsible. Um, um, but they would still have a rudimentary form of free will, and that seems a reasonable conclusion to draw. Now, um, when we look at uh, AI systems, um, we we can ask exactly uh, the same questions here. So we can ask, uh, well, if we look at this AI system, um, does our best explanatory theory uh, that that accounts for this uh, system's functioning um, scientifically, does our best explanatory theory um, uh, attribute intentional agency choice between alternative possibilities and some form of causal control over its actions to that system, um, yes or no? If the answer is yes, then I think we ought to conclude that the system has some form of perhaps rudimentary free will. If the answer is no, then then, then not. Um, now, within AI, um, um, until not so long ago, most AI systems, um, perhaps even until now, most AI systems um, would um, uh, fall under the rubric of what is usually, or what is often called a weak AI. So weak AI systems are systems that are um, very good at uh, highly specialized um, tasks, often number crunching tasks, or very well described specific tasks. Um, a chess computer is actually a very good example of this, or you know, some some other number crunching uh, device would be a good example of this. While um, strong AI um, uh, would uh, or refers to to systems uh, whose uh, cognitive capacities um, are more wide ranging and display greater flexibility and uh, clearly, I mean. Humans uh, are well. Of course, we are not artificial intelligent systems, but but you know, but we we'd be uh, strong, not AI, but strong AI systems par excellence, precisely because human general intelligence is so uh, incredibly um, uh, flexible and and wide ranging. That's a very um, you know unique thing about uh, about uh, human uh, cognition. Now. Um, when we look at such a chess playing AI system, um, 
if we think of it as a weak AI system, um, then um, it's less obvious that we'd want to um, ascribe such rich agential capacities to that system. You know, maybe then um, a, a theory that looks at this system more um, from an algorithmic perspective through the um, lens of a computational level of description might be explanatorily more appropriate. Um, but if it really so happens that our best explanatory theories of that, of that system uh, really view that system as an intentional agent, uh, and that gives us much greater explanatory purchase than just viewing that system through the lens of the underlying um, computational mechanisms or algorithms, um, then I think I would be inclined to say that this system is at least a, a rudimentary um, in, intentional agent. If you push this example further, so suppose you have a system which is not just good at this very specific um, number crunching task, but but the system displays, you know, um, agential capacities that are much more flexible, much more wide ranging. Um, uh, then, in principle, uh, you know, my theory would uh, support the conclusion that uh, there is a rudimentary form of free will present in such a system. Okay, so I think I want to make sure I understand you correctly here, and this is a very interesting point, at least to me that if we build what's called AGI, artificial general intelligence, or ASI, artificial super intelligence, an AI that can improve itself, then that would in principle have free will. And I really want to zero in on this topic and on this point and hammer this home for the audience because the free will that you're proposing could in principle be had by robots or artificially intelligent systems. Now, this is radically different from the traditional notion of free will, which is the religious notion of free will, that it's something unique to humans. I really hope the audience sees this distinction because I think it's crucial. And this is a point where I might have misunderstood you, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems to me that if you make this distinction between your conception of free will and the conception of free will that religious people hold, then someone like you who believes in free will and someone like Jerry Coyne who doesn't are really, for the most part, disagreeing on the semantics. You agree on the substantive bit, which is how the universe works. You're just deciding what you want to call this phenomena. Would that be a fair assessment of your views? Well... I mean, of course, you're 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 certainly right that um, the the definition of free will itself is contested, and there are many different definitions of free will out there. Um, some are more demanding than than others. So there are some compatibilist, standard compatibilist definitions of free will that um, um, uh, stand in no particular conflict with. Um, a deterministic picture of the world at all. Um, uh, there are um, also some very demanding libertarian definitions of um, free will that um, uh, are perhaps um, best viewed in the context of some kind of Cartesian dualistic uh, worldview. Um, uh, but um, 
uh, in my aim uh, in, in uh, my project uh, uh, has been to identify uh, a notion of free will um, that um, captures um, most of the properties that um, uh, are associated with free will um, against the background of our libertarian free will intuitions that we all have. Namely, as I said, free will requires intentional agency. It requires alternative possibilities to choose from, and it requires some form of causal control over your actions or mental causation. And I would be inclined to think that um, even um, a free will libertarian um, ought to agree that free will does indeed require these um, properties. Now, um, uh, some traditional free will libertarians um, might think that uh, um, in order to have full-blown libertarian free will, um, uh, we may need to um, depart more significantly from a um, naturalistic, physicalist, perhaps deterministic um, picture of um, the, the, the physical world. And they might think that libertarian free will cannot be reconciled with um, the combination of physicalism and and determinism but you know requires something else for instance indeterminism or some form of um, cartesian dualism um, but what i want to show is that there is actually a perfectly good uh, robust plausible um understanding of free will that um deserves the label libertarian free will, I call it compatibilist libertarian um, free will, um, which um, captures um, uh, our core free will intuitions, including uh, this idea that free will requires alternative possibilities, but which at the same time is um, fully compatible with a naturalistic um, worldview and uh, can be reconciled with a scientific picture of the world. Now, if we have this conception of free will, it's clear that it then becomes a contingent scientific question, which entities or systems in the world qualify as having free will? Um, and that then is an empirical question. Um, it, um, you know, is it, are humans the only entities or beings that uh, you know satisfy those conditions, intentional agency, alternative possibilities, and causal control? Or um, could other entities uh, uh, have those uh, properties as well? And I already pointed out that um, if we look at um, other non-human primates, such as chimpanzees, um, um, it's plausible to argue that, that they have these three properties. Um, it, in, in, in some form and that therefore they can be said to have a perhaps somewhat more rudimentary form of free will, although their cognitive capacities are not quite uh, on a par with the human ones. And for this reason, well, we wouldn't hold them morally responsible for their, for, for their actions, for instance. But that seems to be the right uh, diagnosis of, um, uh, of um, agency and action uh, at the level of, uh, of, of, of non-human animals. Um, um, until very recently, um, it was really just living organisms, humans and perhaps non-human animals, that um, 
were even candidates for the ascription of intentional agency or, uh, or, or free will. Um, but um, now with the um, uh, arrival of um, more sophisticated AI, which is perhaps still arguably in its in infancy, but could, can be expected to be developed much further, it becomes at least a possibility that um, systems with somewhat similar cognitive capacities uh, will, will be developed. And we should then not be completely surprised uh, that some of those systems could also have uh, some or all of these properties of intentional agency, choice between alternative possibilities and mental causation, at least to, to some extent. Um, and uh, if this were the case, then good scientific practice would require attributing free will to those systems uh, as well. And that could be explanatorily useful. I mean, what follows normatively from this is, is still a, a different, is still a different story. And, and um, that would require a moral background theory and it require saying a lot more about, uh, you know, how free will fits together with um, our theories of, of responsibility. So th these are all, you know, big and non-trivial, uh, non-trivial non um, questions uh, that, that we'd still have to tackle, of course. Yeah, I, I guess it would also require consciousness to some extent if you want to establish a field of AI ethics, for example. But uh, I know we've only scratched the surface here, but free will is one of those topics where you can speak for 10 hours and still not complete the whole thought. So I'd highly recommend anyone listening to this reads your book because there you've really comprehensively and systematically dealt with every argument against free will. So it's been really fruitful for me to talk to you. It's been a learning experience and I hope the audience learns with me. And thank you so much for inaugurating my podcast with me. Well, thank you for having me on the program. It's been a great pleasure.